0: I was working in those environments where I didn't see any people of color at the time who looked like me who were in leadership. So I was really wanting to find mentors. Really, it was not just mentors who looked like me. I think you can have mentors who don't look like you. But it was more about, if you don't see those examples, are you going to be able to rise yourself in those environments? And I think that's what made me so fearful was, was I personally going to be able to advance or get ahead if I didn't see people who looked like me?
1: I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice. And we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Lauren Wesley Wilson. She is the founder of ColorCom, Inc., which is a national platform dedicated to advancing people of color in the communications industry. ColorComm encompasses a membership organization, national leadership conferences, a fellows program, a men of color community, and so much more. Prior to founding the network, Lauren worked in PR and communications at some of the biggest crisis comms firms in Washington, D.C., and for politicians, including House Representative Eddie Bernice Johnson and former President Barack Obama. You may have heard of him. Lauren,
0: welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be on. So excited to chat.
1: Um, So before we get into the conversation, I want you to prepare. We like to warm up with a lightning round. It is quick questions, quick answers to get to know you better.
0: Okay. Got it. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Let's do it. What
1: is your favorite TV show of all time?
0: (laughs) I'm not ready. Okay. You know what? I love the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'm also watching Bel Air on Peacock.
1: Okay. I think this is a good answer. We're good. (laughs) What is like your go-to pump up song?
0: (sighs) I mean, I just have a genre of, you know, gangster rap music and anything like that.
1: Is there like one song that you're like, if you're having a day or you need to like get pumped up, you're like, I got to just put this on repeat. (sighs)
0: Maybe like a Hustle Hard, but it's so old. I mean, these these songs are so old. I'm like, people are going to be like, I don't even. But they work. <laughs> they work. They work. They work. I mean, oldie but goodie. Yeah. They do the job. Just something, you know.
1: <laughs> okay. So I've been really excited to ask you this. You are a PR and comms expert. What advice would you give to the following? The first person I'm going to ask is Tom Sandoval from Vanderpump Rules.
0: <laughs> Tom is your client. What would you tell Tom? Probably to pause dating for a little bit.
1: Second client, Megan and Harry. Wow.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. Take a moment to be out of the media and just kind of assess your goals and what's next for you as a couple, as business partners, and that sort of thing.
1: Sage advice. Okay. What is one thing that we could not Google about you to prepare for this?
0: Probably couldn't Google what is my personality outside of the office, which my friends would always say that I am like a mini comedian. So I like to bust chops and, you know, make people laugh, but you wouldn't really find that online.
1: At work, are you like much more buttoned up or do you joke at
0: work? Oh, I'm so much more buttoned up, (laughs) (laughs) but I would say after work, I'm way more fun.
1: What is the last photo you took on
0: your phone? gosh, can I go look? Yeah. You know, the last photo I took was um, of a couch because I'm furniture shopping right now, right now. And I'm moving <laughs> apartments and all the things are happening at once. So yes, it was, it was a beautiful couch. So yeah.
1: Good. Well, I wish you in the couch well. <laughs> Thank um, you. When did you feel like, damn, like I've had success. I'm making it.
0: I think it took a long time to feel that way. ColorCom has been around for 12 years. And I think probably the moment I felt like, wow, we really have it is probably like right now. And I think there were other moments along the way where I felt you know, very successful and very proud of our team and all things that we've achieved, whether it's certain revenue goals or with certain metrics. But I think more recently, we were able to move into Rockefeller Center in beautiful office space with the team. And it, and it really just made me recognize and feel that we have a sustainable business and we really are changing lives and we really are making great impact.
1: For those who are listening that are not from New York, that is a really humble brag way of saying you've made it in real estate. (laughs) That is is some prime New York real estate. Congratulations.
0: Expensive, but, uh, (laughs) you know, worth it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I want to jump into the conversation and I want to start actually with your background in, in crisis comms and PR. When most people hear that somebody works in that field, I think they might think, or I'm going to speak for myself, I think of Olivia Pope and Scandal. Yeah.
0: I was often compared to her many, many times, especially when the show is going on.
1: Did you have a white coat?
0: You know, actually I did. <laughs> before, before the show came, I had a very beautiful cream, cream coat that I was rocking. A key but, yeah. part of the
1: role. <laughs> yeah. Can you describe what your experience in that industry was like and how you like broke into that?
0: Yeah. I mean, and we still take on clients in the crisis in media space under ColorCom Media Group, so it never goes away. But I started my career in Washington, D.C., so kind of similar. And ironically, the show is named after a woman named Judy Smith. She plays Olivia Pope. She's a dear friend and has been on the show. Oh, she has. Yes. Well, I actually worked at the same firm that she had worked at. It's called Corvus and they are crisis communications, international governments. So half my time was spent on crisis communications, international governments, but then thought leadership, stakeholder engagement, which is a really interesting term that people just basically use for influencer marketing right now. But back in the day, there was no influencer marketing. It was just like, who are your stakeholders? Who are your audiences? Who are your people influencing products, services, or laws? And so crisis communications is an industry where you have to act fast, you have to stay calm, you have to provide reassurance. But really, the most important thing is when a crisis does hit is knowing the facts and always kind of implementing the same plan that you would do for anybody so that you're not in a crisis. So there's like 10 steps you need to follow. and once you kind of follow those you execute that kind of formula for any crisis that comes your way and you make sure and really have to assess is it really a crisis because what maybe a client feels is a crisis may not be a crisis for their stakeholders and the people that they're trying to influence i mean that's what a crisis ultimately is is the people that i'm trying to influence whether it's my product or my service or consumers you know it's going to hit the fan if we don't solve x y and z or We're going to lose market share or we're going to lose our customer base. And if those things don't necessarily look to be true, then it might not be a crisis. That's something that we have to assess is, is it a crisis first? And if so, these are the things that we need to do. But you have to act fast because so oftentimes I see clients not acting fast enough and then you lose days and you lose windows. So crisis doesn't really take a day off.
1: You said something that fascinates me, which is really about staying calm. And at least on the surface, a calm And I think, you know, one of the things, and now that you're also an entrepreneur, I'm sure you can commiserate on this. Like sometimes being an entrepreneur, you're a firefighter every day. You're just putting out fires and you're playing whack-a-mole. And for me personally, like staying calm, showing I'm calm was not a skill set that I had when I started the skim. I feel like I had to learn that, you know, and everything becomes relative and you gain perspective, blah, blah, blah. But like, that was hard for me. Mm-hmm. Is that something that came naturally to you?
0: No, no, not at all. When you're starting your business and you have a lot of things coming at you, there is a feeling of when you're the business owner, a feeling of urgency. The feeling of we have to get it done right now. And sometimes your team may not feel that way or sometimes others around you may not feel that way. But your job as a business owner isn't just kind of like what's on your to-do list. It's a little bit more encompassing that even if you do have people who lead operations or finance or even if you are properly staffed, you're still Overseeing all those things and beyond just your day to day work that's coming at you, it's the operations of the business that's coming at you. So there is a feeling of urgency because if you don't get it done, the next day it's just going to pile up and it's going to pile up. And so you're kind of always chipping away at some of those items. I think as a leader, it's about maturity. You know, I started and was working in my mid to late 20s and I left the crisis firm that I was at. And I left my full-time job to become a business owner and to run a team and a staff and hire. And back in those days, you didn't know what you didn't know. And I didn't know how to be the most effective manager and leader. I didn't necessarily have all that leadership experience at the time. But at that time, I had really clear objectives and business goals that like advanced me above my peers. So I was a really good performer, but maybe not the best leader. And so I had to get my own career coaching and training to just kind of mirror those skills together because people who work on like the business side aren't necessarily equipped to be great leaders unless they have training in management and leading and overseeing people. I want to stick with the
1: PR part for a second and kind of the the pre-ColorCom world. And i'm I'm speaking from watching Scandal. It appears to be very, very cutthroat. It can be like a very inside baseball or looks like a very inside baseball world, super cutthroat and exclusive. Do you agree with that? and And if so, like how did you navigate that?
0: I absolutely agree with it. It is a very exclusive industry, I would say. and I come out of the business of the corporate PR world. So there's just very much more structure. And and there are all types, depending on what industry you could be in. I mean, you could be in corporate, you could be in fashion, you could be in healthcare. I mean, it's an industry function, but it can be more niche. I would say that in this business, I mean, I was working at companies with revenue over $500 million, and these were big, you know, big companies. And so I would say back in those days, It was a certain type of person who even got in the door as an intern. And that was oftentimes your entryway into getting into some of these big jobs was interning. And so as an intern, they don't pay a lot. They expect a lot, but don't pay a lot. And so just to cut to it, you know, a lot of these corporations and ones that I had worked at like Edelman and Weber Shamrock and some amazing big names that have taught me so much about how to do my job. Those internships were so valuable. But... At the same time, entryway is not oftentimes for people of color. Most of the time, 99% of the time, you need to have already graduated college. And now you've graduated college with an internship that only pays you an internship salary. So how are you getting the support financially through your parents? And oftentimes, people of color just don't come from families that can support them full time. And when I first started out, I... Was in grad school at Georgetown University, studying masters in communications, and I worked at Edelman. But the, I had two jobs. Actually, I had three jobs. I was working at an advertising firm. I was working at a PR firm, and I was also the hostess at a restaurant. And I was going to school, so I didn't have the luxury. But I mean, I made it work. You know, it's it's interesting to say like you can make. I made it work. I was you know definitely. A person who was always ambitious. And I knew, I really knew that it was beyond just the money, it was the opportunity to be able to have that experience with one of the best PR firms in the United States and to be able to get that training and coaching. So sometimes we're not always lucky because of our circumstances, but sometimes if we do get those opportunities, how to figure out how to make it work if you don't have those financial resources? Where can you pick it up elsewhere?
1: What you're describing kind of both your experience and what you saw is like how there's especially certain industries that make it harder for those from a certain background, whether socioeconomic or in some cases, a racial background to get ahead. Connect that to me with like how you came up with Color Call.
0: Yeah. You know, it was working in those environments where I didn't see any people of color at the time who looked like me who were in leadership. Now, in the junior level and and at the entry level, it's more prominent, but in terms of when you move on up, it became less and less and less. And so I was really wanting to find mentors. Really, it was not just mentors who looked like me, I think you can have mentors who don't look like you. I mean, it's really important to have a variety of mentors in your sphere. But it was more about, If you don't see those examples, are you going to be able to rise yourself in those environments? And I think that's what made me so fearful was, was I personally going to be able to advance or get ahead if I didn't see people who looked like me? And so what I did, you know, about 12 years ago is I had a partner at the time who helps me out. And we work together to create this luncheon series to bring women of color.
1: And sorry to interrupt, but like you are full-time employed at this point. This is like on the side.
0: This is on the side. Okay, This is totally on the side. It's not making any money. It was an idea. It was called ColorCom. It was a luncheon series. It was like, okay, How can we bring together women of color who look like us, who do communications work, marketing and advertising work together? Because we should know who our counterparts are at competing companies. Like we don't know each other. We feel isolated. We feel alone. And we would come together and meet over lunch. It'd be about 50 women. And we would share stories about our experiences. And we'd find out that we're not alone and that so-and-so has a very similar experience of wanting to get ahead but not seeing people who look like you. How can we take this community that we built and turn it into a business community? So, yes, we talked about diversity or our challenges, but how do we use this community to talk about opportunity? How can we share information? How can we exchange contacts? How can we coach each other on to be better leaders, better professionals? This is what we need to do and navigate to advance. And that's ultimately was our purpose and and still is and our goal. So, we did these luncheon series and about a year into it, a group of people got up and was like, we need, a for- we need to make this more formal. This lunch is wonderful. I've been coming to all the luncheons. I've learned so much. How do we make this more formal, transition into a membership-based community? How do we have a board? Do all these things.
1: So wait, I'm going to interrupt you because I really want to break this down. Sure. Which is, I'm like picturing you like you have a full-time job. Yes. You're passionate about this. You create this you know, lunch series. It's going well. And then people are like, I'm going to need a lot more. Yeah. Where were you kind of personally? Were you like, okay, like, here we go. Or are you like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, what was your reaction?
0: I was like, I want, I was absolutely like, I want more. I thought it was a fantastic idea and I wanted more for myself as well. Like I mentioned, I had a partner at the time. She didn't want to go any further. She was like happy with the lunches. She was like, I don't want to make it a membership organization. We need to do a focus group. We need to interview people. We need to make sure it's going to be successful. And I'm a risk taker, so I was like, Look, let's just do it. Let's just you know. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, I'm still employed. But when she decided to go her separate ways, I decided to move forward. And when I decided to make that transition from a lunch to a membership, oh, it changed the game in terms of this side hustle's becoming a real entity and i would spend so much of my time trying to formalize it. So what what i mean by that is back in those days i would always go to every friday this free business coaching it's called score and you put together your plan and they challenge you and there are people who were in the business world or financial world and challenge you on your business plan, challenge you on your revenue and your operations and then every week i would be getting mentorship and spend a few hours there. And so I had moved from working in a corporate entity to now working on Capitol Hill. And so now I'm on Capitol Hill and I'm using my Fridays during the summer because we're in recess to go to PNC Bank and formalize our business to head on over to score and get training. And I should also mention that my mother was a huge mentor because she ran a really big multi-million-dollar advertising business in St. Louis and Chicago. So she really knew this business. So it was just a number of people in my life who were really helping me really formalize this entity. But I'd say I had no social life at the time. I was like spending all my free time at the Marriott Hotel across the street from my apartment because I had no like Wi-Fi and I had to like spend all my time stealing their Wi-Fi and spending 12 hour days on the weekend.
1: I hope they're a sponsor now. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, in some yeah we, we yeah in some ways we you know we we, we got to go back to Marriott be like we got a great
1: story for you. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> oh well, we, you know, we're loyal to them, you know, we're always at the Ritz-Carlton for our conference. We're so loyal to them, but I say all this to say that it takes a lot of work to get a business up and going and a lot of personal sacrifice where you look back on it and you realize it's a sacrifice. At the time, you're so laser focused and so excited and so passionate about building something that it is a lot of work and it is a lot of hours, but it's also a lot of fun. It requires the manpower. And so, you know, working full time, doing this on the weekends as a 20 something year old, you know, my friends were off to Las Vegas going to go party. My friends were traveling every Three day weekend. They were on whitewater rafting trips and just like having a blast. And I was just typing away at the Marriott. With some great Wi (laughs) Fi. With some great Wi Fi. And, you know, we launched that summer with 40 members, about 15 board members. And we launched in DC. And then we took our membership organization to New York and Chicago and LA and San Francisco and Houston and Dallas, et cetera.
1: But what was like the initial. Just to even get it launched to, you know, to go to the bank appointments. Like what was the initial pitch that you were creating? And for who? You're talking to all these people, both members, keep getting people to join the board, like taking meetings at a bank, et cetera. Like what was the initial idea that you got off the ground? Because obviously 12 years later, it's this enormous organization with so many different arms to it. But I'm curious, like what the original kind of like nucleus of the idea was.
0: I think what really drew people to ColorCom back in those days is that we were fulfilling a void, but also it was a unique way in which this void was being fulfilled. It wasn't that groundbreaking to start necessarily a membership organization for women of color. There were various groups that were similar and overlapping on paper, but what I found that audience... And the attendees and the people who were engaged with us, they got out of it. And what they told us the feedback was there was really an opportunity to do business. And so often you go to networking meetings or organizations and the right people really aren't in the room or they're trying to break into the business. But ours was really unique is because it was very intergenerational. And it was it was women made up from twenty two to sixty-five, you know, something for everybody and really provide an opportunity for people to learn and grow. And that's what really made this platform you know unique and people kept on coming back
1: there is a gender gap we talk a lot about that on the show and it is much wider gap for women of color how do you advise the women in your network the members to not only know but to assert their value in their professional life knowing that there are unfortunately so many hurdles that are systemic that are not designed to help them right now
0: yeah i think it's several things and one It's so important to have an awareness of self, like do your own quick facts about yourself because companies do that about you anyways. They assess your value and you have to assess your own value. They assess your value. And so just because you take two people who might have two similar jobs, they're not going to be paid equally. And why do they put one value over one person and one value over another person? And on the East Coast, the value could be what school did you go to, who your family is. How did you get into the door? Are you connected to a client? Are you connected to a family member? There are various things that you see and there's various things that you don't see that assess one's value. And so being self-aware about what your value is and what you bring to the table is important. Like even just a self-assessment of yourself. Are you connected? What school did you go to? What type of performer are you? And sometimes those stats don't matter as much because you are performing. What Percentage of business are you bringing into the company? How are you contributing as a leader? What do you know and what does your company know? That's the important thing. And sometimes we, oftentimes as employees, just go in fighting for more money because this person over here makes more. I need to make more. But not having a clear assessment of what you bring to the table and your own kind of quote unquote fact sheet, that's important too. So self awareness is very much important, knowing your value, knowing what your company thinks of you. And just being armed with the information and tools to be able to advocate for more if the numbers show that you really do deserve more based off X, Y, and Z, not just based off of, I feel like it on a Tuesday, making more money, but these are my contributions. This is my longevity here. This is how I've changed a certain piece of the business. Those things are are really important to be able to establish.
1: I want to get your perspective on networking. You know, I'm talking to you in 2023. We have come out of a pandemic. We have a whole generation of people young in their career who missed a few years of professional development in an office. And you have a lot of other people who maybe have had that experience, but then we're missing that professional development of like when it's time to transition in your career. Yeah, And so everyone is sort of in this weird limbo of like feeling stilted of like how to network and how to actually take advantage of when you get FaceTime. And I'm curious, what is the advice you're giving to your members now around that?
0: You know, so much has changed and you're right. And I feel so just bummed for this generation that didn't get that in-office experience because I think their priorities have shifted. I think in this new climate, We've opened up a lot of self care and advocacy and personal development. And we've realized that, okay, everything isn't about work. And, you know, we probably overworked pre pandemic. But then I also noticed this new generation of leaders who, you know, don't really want to work, they want to really kind of just wing it and uh, be on vacation. And are kind of misguided in the sense of what a hybrid lifestyle should look like, because it's our opportunity to hang with friends and not do those things. And I would encourage, you know, those who are young, who are who just kind of graduated, who are still in their early 20s. If your job allows you to go into the office, go into the office. That face time is so critical, especially early on in building your career information, knowledge sharing, being able to see mentorship, there's only so much you can learn in a digital environment. And I think that works for those who have been who have more experience, truthfully. You know, you've been in the business, you've been out of work for 10, 15 years, you know something. And so you can kind of manage and balance and you know how to manage up, you know, you know some soft skills. So you are a little bit more equipped to be able to set your hours or work at different times or even work on vacation even. But some of these people who just graduated, who are young, want to have that type of lifestyle that someone who's been around for 15, 20 years has had. And they don't know much and you don't know what you don't know. And so I do find this Gen Z, oftentimes this entitlement mentality of everything should happen, you know, I need all these things before i even going to work hard. Where back in the day, you had this mentality of like, you have to prove yourself, you have to earn these perks. And Gen Z is like, I need the perks before I even start. And so I think that it hurts this generation because not every job is up for that. Some are willing to accommodate, many are not. And I would say the best advice is to learn as much as you can, no matter what that environment looks like. Showing an interest asking questions, you know, trying to schedule time with your managers, not all the time, but maybe once a month, but really taking ownership of your career, which is really key.
1: So you recently opened up to Ebony that you are expecting. Yes. Congratulations. I'm so happy for you. Thank you. First of all, how are you feeling? How are you doing?
0: I'm good today. Thank you. Good today. Okay, I'll take it. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> that's, how, that's how this journey is. It's up and down, up and down.
1: <laughs> so, you know, thinking about kind of how far you come, obviously in your professional life, but also in your personal life, I want to share a question from a listener, Monica, that you have spoken in the past about how ambitious women need to make time or space for their romantic lives or starting a family if that is of interest to them. What did making time and space look like for you? Like, how are you doing all of this?
0: (laughs) For me, what it looked like was to limit travel. I've been really busy in terms of building this business, but then also traveling a lot, whether it's for new business development, whether it's for speaking engagements, all variety of things. And then you have your work travel, then you have your personal travel, whether it's Friends' weddings or showers or just catching up with your parents. So you find yourself traveling almost every week. And that could be making dating very hard. And so I think what I really focused on was okay, let me scale back, focus on work and prioritize my personal life. A lot of things I don't have to travel for. You know, you can say no, you know, you can decline, even though you may not want to. You have to figure out what your priorities are because you can't do it all at once. And if you're not working towards some of your goals, then you're just not going to get there. So just, you know, create goals in your personal life the way you would in your work life and work towards those.
1: Good advice. My last question is who else should we have on this show?
0: Gosh, I have to I have to think fast.
1: It's not a lightning <laughs> one you can, you can think about. Oh, uh, have you
0: had like Hannah Brofman on?
1: You know, we had Hannah on, I love Hannah. We had her on like five years ago. So, you know, it might be time to bring her back.
0: She's always a good inspiration for a lot of people. She
1: is. All right. We'll talk to Hannah again. Lauren, congratulations on everything. And so excited for your, your big conference in July at the Ritz-Carlton owned by Marriott, thanks to their Wi-Fi.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh- <laughs> nice little plug there. Can't wait to have you. It's going to be great.
1: Thank you. We're, we're honored to be there. Um, but thank you so much for sharing your story. It's a great one. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account. I promise.